this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. My next guest, Sherry Deutschman, started from relatively humble beginnings. She had a yard sale, as she'll describe, to get the money to start her business, which she ultimately built to $40 million in revenue. She recently sold it for more than seven times EBITDA. There are so many great lessons in this episode. I want you to listen to her approach to culture, in particular, how she decided to pay her profit sharing plan and how did she decided to pay a percentage of the proceeds to the people that helped her get there. Have a listen also for the buyer, how they approached the business that they acquired, some of the mistakes they made and some of the dangers, frankly, of selling to the wrong person. Also listen to how Sherry financed the beginning of her company. If you're ever wondering how to create a positive cash flow cycle, she tells you the story of how she did that in this case. And also listen to how she started the business and basically differentiated the company very early on against some very big time competitors. Here to tell you all this and more is Sherry Deutschman. Sherry Deutschman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So, Letter Logic, I must confess, I was sort of reading the press release beforehand. I'm like, I still don't know what the hell they do. <laughs> so, what do you guys do? What was what is it that Letter Logic does or did? Uh, we printed and mailed patient statements for hospitals. So the data came to us electronically. We did a lot of magic behind the IT curtain and uh, did some data parsing and some uh, calculations, and then printed and mailed hospital bills. So we serviced... So why wouldn't the hospital do this themselves? Um, it was just so much cheaper for them to outsource it. Um, mm. we, we got great discounts from the post office, so uh, dramatically less expensive for them to outsource, and most hospitals do. Okay, so you're not, because you're doing many hospitals, you right. were able to get bulk discounts from post office and so forth. And people, I mean... Do people get paper statements for their medical bills? I'm, I would assume it was all electronic these days. Is that, is that, was that happening in your industry or? It is the, the healthcare industry was very slow to a, adopt um, electronic billing and payment options. They, the hospitals clamored for those options, but once they bought them, they didn't use them and the patients didn't utilize them. So at the time that I, when I sold LetterLogic three years ago, still about 75% of the patient statements were um, on paper. Wow. I, think and, and I, understand, I understand there's kind of an interesting story around the start of LetterLogic because this was, um, well, you tell the story. How did you get started? Well, I worked for a company that printed and mailed patient statements. I was VP of sales. I was uh, responsible for 100% of the revenue. 
and we had tons of problems. Uh, we constantly screwed things up for our clients, and it occurred to me that the problems that we were having, everything was simple human error, and the human error was caused by the fact that the employees didn't care, mm. uh, and they didn't care because nobody cared about them, and mm. so I went to my employer with that epiphany and wanted to talk with him about how we could change the culture and, and create an atmosphere that would make the, the other employees care more. And he patted my hand and told me I didn't know anything about business. <laughs> so uh, I'll show you. <laughs> uh, well, he was right. Uh, you know, at that time I had never even read a business plan. Um, I don't have a college education. I have only high school education. But I went and bought a bunch of books about writing business plans and I wrote a business plan and I left him and started a company competing with him. And how did you finance that? Uh, I went to the local bank thinking that they knew what I had been able to do for this other company, which by that time was about 15 million in revenue, most of which I brought in. And I assumed that the bank would just say, yes, here's your money to start. Uh, And they didn't. So um, I went to several different entities in Nashville that knew me and knew what I had been able to do for that company. And all five said yes Hmm. to funding the company for me, but none of them would allow me the freedom to run the company the way I thought a company should be run. And so I said no to all of them, Um, cashed in my 401k, had a week-long yard sale, sold everything I owned. I went to Goodwill and um, bought a few old file cabinets to serve as the base for a desk. And my desk was an old door. Got a whiteboard and uh, set up shop in my basement competing with the giants. At that time, it was WebMD or MD on now Change Healthcare, which was that ruled the planet uh, in patient statement service. And I was competing with them right next to my washer and dryer. (laughs) So how did you convince these hospitals when they had options to go to any one of these major companies to use you, this independent person, totally self-financed? Well, you know, first I went to a couple of guys in town that would help you with your business plan and maybe invest if they saw any hope. And they told me that um, I had nothing and you mm-hmm. cannot start this business uh, unless you can think of some brilliant thing that would um, differentiate you from everybody else in the market. And so I didn't sleep for 72 hours, just thought about what I could do. And I came up with the one thing that I thought would put me on the map. And I called a few hospitals and said, if I did this, would you give me your business? And they started saying yes. In fact, the first hospital I called was a big healthcare system in Memphis. And the CFO said, "Uh, that's the quintessential no-brainer. If you can do that, you've got my business. What was the one thing? Well, hospitals had about 15% return mail. So if they mailed out uh, 10,000 statements, 1,500 of them came back and they didn't have a way to track down the patients. So they would just turn those patients over to bad debt, to to collection agencies. And that created all kinds of problems for them. Sure. So um, I determined that I would find a good address before I printed and mailed the statement and that any statement that came back to the hospital undeliverable, I would give them a full refund. Wow. So we guarantee delivery or your money back. And that put us on the map. Fantastic. So I've got so many questions. So how did you, uh, I mean, how did you finance the, this? Because this is all on your own uh, dime. So the CFO from the big healthcare company says, yeah, okay, you got the business. 
presumably you have to, I mean, like, where did you get the money to go take the next step of actually fulfilling against this promise? Well, I asked the hospitals all to give me a, a deposit that was worth two months uh, postage usage. Um, and that's how we funded the company. Fantastic. Um, Love it. Love it. And so you got the business off the ground with this first customer. I have to ask, when you left your role as VP sales, did you have a non-compete? How did you stick handle around kind of being able to call on the CFO of the big healthcare network or whatever? Oh, of course. Uh, they sued me for violation of my non-compete. Um, and I countersued for um, money that they owed me. And so we uh, settled out of court and I just agreed not to go after those clients that had been mine prior. Okay. And Got to it. start fresh. Got it. Okay. So you build this company up. Um, how big did you get it? Like how, how, how many employees, how much revenue, like any proxy for a sort of size? Uh, we grew to 40 million in revenue. Uh, with, Fantastic. With 50 employees. There was a time, a, a dark period where we ballooned up to 64, 65 employees unnecessarily. <laughs> um, but we, when I sold the company, there were 51 of us at 40 million in revenue. Why do you say dark period? What was it that caused you to balloon up to 65? Uh, it was me chasing uh, a shiny object. Uh, we were, had become the market leaders in printing and mailing the statements but I had a lot of pressure from clients and from my sales team to start to send the statements electronically. Of course, yeah. And to receive the payments on behalf of our clients electronically. And where prior to me losing my mind, we had just partnered with really good third parties to provide that service. And you know, we had a revenue share and that worked great. But I think I just got too big for my britches and decided I was going to build out the technology to make us compete with the big boys in that, in that arena. And so I spent literally millions of dollars um, trying to build technology, um, hiring people that I didn't even have room for, uh, that we didn't even have time to train because we were growing so quickly. Um, we were on the Inc. 5000 list for 11 straight years. So there was um, lots of growth and I was trying to rebuild the ship at sea um, and really got in over my head. Hmm. I want to go back to something that you mentioned in the previous role that you had where you felt that he wasn't treating, he wasn't creating a culture, not treating people like they, they should be treated. How did you change that in your company? You built a $40 million business, 50 employees or so that's an, ins you know, that's a significant size business. How did you treat people? And what was your, uh, you know, approach to people? Right before I left uh, my previous employer, I had read the book Nuts about Herb Kelleher had, how he dealt Southwest Airlines with the belief that if the flight attendants were happy, the passengers would be happy and that everything would work out great. Well, mm -hmm. look how that turned out. And, you know, that was uh, really smart. So that, that's really what got me to thinking about how bad our culture was and that that was the problem. So when I started letter logic, I determined that I was going to have a really healthy culture that listened to the employees that heard them, that made them feel valued. And, uh, that, and where they were totally vested in the company. How did you make them feel vested? 
the, the best way I knew to do that was literally to give them a piece of the pie. So um, from day one, we gave 10% of the profit to the employees monthly. And importantly, uh, split evenly so that the CFO got exactly the same dollar amount that the custodian got. So that everybody knew that their job was just as important as every other job and no less important than anybody else's job in getting out a quality product. What was the, um, what was the thinking behind doing monthly payments? I wanted people to, um, to be able to draw a direct line between their actions and the results. So every month we brought the entire company together and showed them the financials, the P&L from the previous month. And How they- did you handle it? How did you handle it when you had a, an employee who worked really, really hard in a month and for whatever reason, something out of the, her or his control, the company didn't make money or didn't make as much money and, and therefore that person's energy was for naught? It didn't happen that way. So every month when we had this, this uh, company meeting, we brought everybody together. We showed them the P&L. We showed them the top line and the bottom line. And then we discussed why the results were the way they were. And so if it was a month where the profit was not as much as what we had hoped for, we all knew exactly why. And we could talk about the big screw up for this healthcare system and how that cost us dearly. And they could really draw a line between their behavior and, um, and the end result. Um, the, the profit share checks at first were very small, you know, $7 and $17 and then $170. And um, toward the end, they started getting bigger, $500, $700 a month for each wow. employee. And that really did change behavior. It changed the way people thought uh, it changed um, the fact that they didn't milk the clock. Um, they just worked together, uh, synchronized, and absolutely vested in, in providing the greatest value for our customers, which caused uh, great customer loyalty and, in the end, a pretty great return for the investors. Yeah, it sounds like it. So you're cutting these checks. I mean, one, you know, one criticism, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure I share it, but, I, but I'd be curious to know your thinking around it, of having kind of equal payment from the, 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 the VP, big mucky muck down to the custodian, uh, is that while that's great for the custodian, um, on a percentage of their total comp, it's, it, 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 it ends up being quite small for your very senior people. And, and therefore, when it's flat across the board, it, it, it's, it can act as a, almost a disincentive for very senior people who make a lot of money already. Did you think through that? And what was, how, what was your sort of calculus around that? Well, as you said, the senior people made up a lot of money already. There was a big, pretty big chasm between the pay for the CFO and the pay for the custodian. Mm-hmm. But um, if you don't think the custodian is important, think about the last time you visited a business where things were dirty and unkempt and how it affected how you thought about that brand or think about um, meeting a surly receptionist or somebody that's having a personal conversation the whole time you're at a, at a counter with them trying to buy a product from them. Um, I thought that every person was equally important. And I don't think um, that 
that it, that the people at the top ever resented the people on the lower end of the totem pole as far as pay. Uh, I don't think there was ever any resentment. Um, it really made them work together and appreciate each other. What else did you do to make this culture so unique? The, the payments, the monthly kind of profit sharing, the open book management, anything else that you did that, that really defined your culture? Yeah, I wanted to make it so that when the employee was at work, they could totally concentrate on taking care of the customer, that they weren't worried about paying their bills. They weren't worried about anything else except taking care of the customer. So um, we paid for 100% of everybody's uh, medical, dental, disability, and life insurance. Um, We did that from day one, way before Obamacare. Hmm. We helped the employees buy their first home with the gift toward the down payment uh, of their house, their, their first home. Wow. How much, how much was the gift? That's incredible. Uh, it, it ranged from $1,000 to $10,000, just depending on the individual and their needs. Um, <laughs> Can I come work for you? Yeah. Uh, it's a little late for this that This is now. awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. But uh, we also really paid a fair living wage. Um, and the way we determined what a fair living wage was, and, and you've got to keep in mind that we were a factory. You know, we had big machines that printed, folded, and stuffed bills. Not a very sexy business. And so where we could have gotten away with paying people 10 or $12 an hour, our starting pay was $16 an hour because we looked at what happened if the two lowest paid employees in our company started dating and got married on their joint salaries. And that happens on their joint salaries, where would they afford to live? Uh, and could they afford to save any money? Could they afford to have children and uh, and that's where we set our minimum starting wage at 16 an hour. I mean, this all sounds amazing, but at the end of the day, this has got to be cutting into your profits. No, absolutely not. It absolutely, it is the reason we were profitable. It's a very thin margin business. Um, and it made us more profitable because it made those 50 people work much harder than they would have worked otherwise and work in sync so that um, we, we maximize profits. So we weren't profitable and, and successful in, in spite of our benefits. We were successful because of the benefits. When you say thin margin, I mean, like, what would a typical company in this space be, be netting in the bottom line before tax 5%. on a percentage basis? 5%. 5%. And, and what did you guys do? Did you, did you do better than that? Yes. Closer to 10%. So you were uh, really doubling kind of the industry average in terms of what was, what was possible. Yes. Um, and we were able to do that, uh, John, because we were the most expensive in the industry. We were probably 10% higher than the next highest competitor. And yet we were still able to grow because we had such a great reputation. Our net promoter score was 97, which what? is really? pretty hard. Yes. Uh, and, and the wow, loyalty of our clients, um, you know, when I had to give them a price increase, I called them myself and said, this is what we're doing and this is why. And even after big price increases, customers did not leave us because they were used to the high quality service that we provided and they were very loyal and stayed with us to the end. Speaking of the end, what was it that triggered you to want to sell? <sighs> Two things. Remember me talking about this big me chasing the shiny object and how that yeah, was for sure. So for years I've been giving out profit share checks and we've been profitable for years. And suddenly the profit started dwindling 
and our profit share checks were lower each month. And then two months back-to-back losses. And it was a big wake-up call for me that, you know, something was definitely wrong. I kind of knew what it was, but I couldn't face it. So I hired an outside um, consultant, an interim COO, and he was with me for about two weeks and said, you know what to do. Uh, you, you've tried to become something that you weren't and to make this company something that it isn't. You've gotten away from what made you so good and you've got to get back there or you're going to go under. Hmm. And so he's the one that convinced me to just keep with my original plan, which is to be, to be the very best paper based vendor in the, in the nation and let other people worry about the technology and to drop my ambitions of, of becoming a tech company. And, and so, you know, he said, Sherry, you've, you've been chasing this and trying to be something you're not, and you were already the best at this. Go back to that. And so I did. But presumably there was a reason you were tracing the electronic, you know, uh, digitization of these uh, you know, pa- patient records and receipts because that's the way the industry was going or is going. Right. How did you reconcile that in your mind? Because there's still so many options. There were companies who had built all of the technology platform that didn't have customers that were dying for partnerships with companies like mine that could deliver those customers. And it was, it was just a shortcut really to, providing the hospitals exactly what they needed and, and providing a great transition for them. Okay. So, so back up. So, so you bring in this CEO who tells you kind of what you already know, which is you got to get out of these, this, these new industry, the kind of new business models that you're exploring, but that doesn't answer the question. When, how did you decide to sell? What, what actually triggered that? So after I I took his advice and got us back on track to uh, what he calls major in the majors and just uh, remembering what our core business was and, uh, and got back to focusing just on that in 18 months, we quadrupled EBITDA. So if you have ever thought about selling a company that trailing 12 months, the the, the financial results over the last uh, 12 months is what buyers look at and for 18 months, um, our bottom line was outgrowing our top line for the first time in our company's history. On a percentage basis, obviously. Yeah. And so it was textbook time to sell. At the same time, uh, my teenage granddaughter came to live with me. She was 13 and I felt like she really needed me to be more available to her. And so it was, it was just the right time to sell. Hmm. And so what did you do? Uh, I uh, called a broker in North Carolina, Mike Nolan of Empire Business Brokers, and started with, uh, you know, getting a company valuation. And then for a year and a half, had many valuations every Monday and every Thursday with my executive team. You think that a company's value wouldn't change much from a Thursday to a Monday, but it can. If you... uh, you sign a great new customer uh, that can really affect uh, the valuation. How was you your a good customer? How was your company valued? Uh, what w- what was the methodology that you were using to value the company? It was a multiple of EBITDA. Got it. And how did you discover that multiple? What was what were you using as a as sort of a benchmark? Well, our our broker had just. Um, 
had his finger on the pulse of that kind of sale nationwide. So kind of knew a, a good range. Got it. Okay. So you've got a broker involved. You're measuring your EBITDA on a regular basis and it's, you figure it's some sort of multiple. What did you think was a, a decent range of EBITDA multiple? Like what kind of range were you, were you thinking it would be in? What kind of X to Y? It had been, you know, five to six in our industry for the last several sales. And we so five were, to we six times able, EBITDA. Mm-hmm. We were able to get seven and a half. Wow. And how did you do that? How did you do so much better than the industry average? I think there was just a lot of interest uh, in, in the company, a lot of strategic buyers and private equity uh, that were really interested in letter logic. In fact, I think for the past five or six years, the, the previous five or six years before I sold the company, there'd been a lot of interest, a lot of buyers. Mm. So it was so t- uh, competitive. So take us through the actual transaction itself. So you've got Mike on board. He's, he's out there marking the company. What was the next step? I mean, did, did, did you have a sort of a, an offer date where you said, look, you know, bring your offers in by this date? Or how did you sort of go from there? Yeah, so I think that's exactly how Mike approached it. Um, we contacted all the people who had been um, pursuing us. And then he went to several others who he thought would be um, good strategic buyers and we had lots of interest and we set a deadline for receiving offers and having visits and the, the whole dog and pony show, Yeah, uh, which was actually a lot of fun. And How would you describe the dog and pony show of those, those, you know, management meetings, management uh, visits, where you're visiting with a potential acquirer for someone who's never gone through that experience? How, how would you describe that to them? It was um, just like, you know, the, the best sales pitch you've ever made for selling, you know, the, whatever your company sells. We were making a sales pitch and Mike had prepped the entire team. In fact, he worked with us tirelessly to uh, have mock uh, presentations where he would throw questions at us that a potential buyer uh, might ask. And he, he taught us how to answer those questions, honestly, but providing uh, just the right answer and not going overboard with giving too much information. What were the zingers you were preparing for? Um, wow. I I've never thought about that. Uh, I'm assuming uh, one of them was the digitization of these statements. We're not going to be printing statements in 50 years. This business is going to be going in the direction of the checks. Why, you know, why am I buying a business that's, you know, on the decline would be, I'm assuming one of the questions Mike prepared you to answer. No, I think they were, everybody that was interested in buying us was interested in buying us because we were the undisputed best at the paper okay. and they still had to have that paper components. And they weren't, they, they didn't question us on that. Um, they were more interested in how we'd continue to grow with just such a small sales force. We only had two salespeople. Really? Wow. And how we were able to get some of the most prestigious uh, healthcare entities to sign with us when we were a small Nashville-based company. Um, They were superficially interested in our culture, which was very curious to them. Um, Why why do you say superficially? uh, Because in the end, the buyer that bought LetterLogic uh, just did not. uh, And the first, the very first day they owned the company, they did away with the profit share. Oh, so uh, okay. well, I want to get into that a second. So before we get to that, though, how many of these companies that you visited with 
that had expressed interest actually provided you with a letter of intent, so an offer of some sort? I think there were seven. Seven offers. And, and give me the range, if you could, like on a, on a percentage basis, were, there all, were they all kind of around the seven times EBITDA or were they like wildly different? They were um, mostly in the same range, although, you know, one really interested party uh, who I wish I'd sold to now, uh, you know, said, we know that you're going to get higher offers, but we really want your company for this reason. And I wish that I paid a little more because they love the culture. And, and they, was that a strategic or a financial buyer that was liking the call? A strategic buyer. Okay. So let's get into it. Why did you choose, you had seven offers. Why did you choose the one you did? Uh, one, because it was the highest offer. Um, okay. <laughs> but I, the, the private equity firm that bought us merged us with some other companies in our industry that they had already acquired. I knew those companies. Um, I liked them. I liked the the leadership teams there, I'd known them through the associations, that industry. Uh, and it felt like a good fit. It felt like we were aligned when it came to culture. Mm. And I so their like, offer, sorry, keep going. I felt like they were the most likely to maintain the culture and to take care of the people the way I was used to taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the offer seven and change times EBITDA are, are, is it all cash or are they saying you've got to sort of carry some over? What was, how did they structure that? It was all cash. All cash. Okay. So a big offer, all cash. What was the expectation that you would have after the sale? I mean, were they saying, you know, hit the beach kind of thing or what, did they want you to stick around for a while or what? How did that they asked me to stick around. They asked me if I would invest into in the new entity, which I did. And they asked me but, to... But it wasn't a requirement. It was not a requirement. And they asked okay. that I, that I um, stay on the board. Um, so I, I did that. Post-sale, um, I, I invested a couple million dollars and I stayed uh, on the board for about six months. And, and to be clear, what are you investing in? Was it... Was it the, the private equity company Westview, or was it the entity that you had sold rolled up with this other? Uh, the entity that stuff? I had sold. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what was the liquidity on that investment? Like you had invested a couple million dollars in, in that. Did you have uh, the ability to sell your shares uh, because it was still a private company, I'm assuming? Yes, I did. And actually six months into it, it was just too painful for me to watch the changes uh, with my company. And I just asked them out. So I got my money back and a, and a nice return on my investment for those six months that I was in it and just uh, got to start my new life. What was it that let's get into what happened then. So, so, so private equity company bought the business. Um, what were the changes that they made? Well, as I said, the first thing they did was get rid of the profit share. Oh. So what did, what did you do at that point when, when they said they were going to get rid of the profit sharing? Cried. Hmm. It was uh, really painful for them to change. And, and it was so frustrating because they didn't understand that that, how that profit share drove our profitability and how it made everybody work together so closely to make us as profitable as we were. And they had paid lip service to us during the dog and pony show that they understood and they loved that idea, but they did away with it. So um, 
a lot of anguish and tears and the net results were that a lot of the employees left them. Um, I think today of the 51 employees that we um, had at that time, 12 still work for that company. That's tough. So what, I mean, there were other elements of the culture beyond just the profit sharing that you had created. Um, there were the gifts uh, for first time home buyers. Um, you know, there was the health care, there was the, the health insurance. Did those stay or were they, were they also eliminated? Um, of course, most of those left, but the, you know, they had a you know, better 401k plan, I think, than we did. Um, they were a much larger company. They might have had um, some better base pay. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't have was empathy. And I believe that empathetic leadership was at the heart of what made us great. Um, and that we hired employees who had empathy. And so the benefits that we provided are a lot of, are, are, you know, created a lot of success for us. But it was really more the culture of empathy and caring and kindness. Um, we had, um, I think there were three key things that really made us successful. And one was the, just listening to the employees and giving them, uh, giving them the opportunity to be heard. And I did that both formally and informally. On Wednesdays, I wasn't Sherry, the CEO. I was Lucy, a coworker. And any employee could sign up to have lunch with me. They would choose the restaurant. They would choose who else would be with, at the table with us. Sometimes it was a parent or a spouse or somebody they were dating they wanted me to check out. Um, sometimes it was the entire department ganging up on me uh, for a policy change or for something they wanted. But those Wednesday lunches were dedicated to just me listening to the employees. And through that, I learned about their hopes and dreams. And believe it or not, not a single one of them uh, in their teenage years dreamed about working for a patient statement company. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> but I heard about what made them tick and, and then what unique challenges they faced every morning before they came into work. I got to know them. And they told me and I listened uh, what they thought I was doing right and wrong and leading the company. Um, they told me when we needed new equipment or when we didn't or when we were spending money frivolously. Uh, and it became the most important time that I spent with my employees every week. I mean, there's a chain of command in a company though, right? I mean, you're, aren't you undermining the managers that they report to by, by having all these lunches? No. Um, I, I believe that the, uh, the, the management team was really grateful for what I heard and what I've learned about the employees and we, we didn't have much hierarchy. Everybody, because of the flat profit share plan, we were all considered equal. We were yeah. equal. You mentioned there are three things that made you guys a successful, mm -hmm. empathy being one. What were the other two? Transparency. So that started with us opening the books and sharing with the employees exactly how much money we were making and how. Um, we also had someone, uh, a scribe, attend our leadership meetings, and we published the minutes to the leadership meetings hmm. so that the whole staff could see what we were talking about. And that's, you know, a way they knew that they were heard. If they kept talking about a, a machine malfunction that was causing them headaches, they could see from the minutes that we were talking about that and that we were 
you know, making moves to buy new equipment or to refurbish equipment. So they felt heard in that way. Um, having um, just the transparency in everything that we did. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my door was open for anybody to come and talk to me anytime. And then the third, the third part was really the the profit share plan, which I believe is the, the smartest business move I ever made. How did you uh, share in the rewards of the sale of the company? Um, did, did you share anything with the employees? How did, how did you, how did you think about that? Yeah, where, where I had been giving 10% of the profit to the employees all along, um, I announced on Monday that the company had been sold. And the following Monday was my last day with the company. And that last week, I called in the employees one by one. And I'm going to cry and thank to them for um, what they had done to build our company. And then I was able to hand um, each of them a check. And so I gave 15% of the sale of the company to the employees. Um, this time it wasn't split evenly. It was um, tenure-based. It had to be because some people like Matt Motzinger had been with me for 14 years. And some people had been with us just a few months. But it was so much fun to uh, you know, ask someone, if I gave you $10,000 today, what would you do with it? And, uh, and then after they told me, I'll say, well, here's 35,000, have fun. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, one, one guy jumped up and ran out of the room and said, I'm going to buy that boat right now. <laughs> uh, the most heartwarming uh, thing that came from giving money away to the employees was uh, a young woman, uh, 25 years old, who called me a few months after the sale, took me to lunch to tell me what she had done with her money. Um, her parents were, Serbian refugees, and she had overheard them talking about how as soon as their house was paid off, which was still going to take years, they were going to send money back to Serbia to help relatives there. Um, so she went and paid off their mortgage. And she said she never would have considered that if she hadn't worked at a company like Letter Logic, where empathy was so key to our success. Sorry for crying on your show. <laughs> No, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for you sharing the, the story. It's such a, you know, we think of business as all just dollars and cents and zeros and ones. And, and of course there's people behind all of the decisions that we make for the, for the good and the bad. And, and your story um, shows both sides, the amazing gift it is to be a business owner and, and the ability to just decide that you're going to share in the proceeds. Um, uh, yeah, I believe I believe it is a gift, um, an awesome privilege, and a responsibility for every employer. Every entrepreneur should be taking great care of their employees. We, we don't have anything without them. Sherry, how did you try to make the case to the private equity buyers that they were you know, they were, they were clearly, you know, missing the forest for the trees, cutting off the nose to spite their face. You, you can pick any number of cliches to de describe what they were doing. Um, did you just quietly kind of roll your eyes and, and walk away? Did you kind of get up in their grill and say, you're making a mistake? The whole reason, like, how did you, what, how did you try to convince them to keep the profit sharing plan? Or did you? Um, it, it was too late. They, had, they just made the decision. 
but I was very loud and vocal <laughs> at every board meeting. And I think I was just a giant pain in the butt to them. So I think <laughs> They're like, Sherry, you want your shares back and out of here. <laughs> yes. It was kind of like that. But when yeah. I, I think as soon as I said, you know, I want out of this, uh, I think, I think it's probably the fastest check they ever wrote getting mm-hmm. rid of me. Well, their loss, our gain. <laughs> Tell us what you're up to these days. What, uh, what, what's keeping you busy now? Well, I do a lot of public speaking about the importance of, of empathy and leadership. And I've written a book. It's called Lunch with Lucy, Maximize Profits by Investing in Your People. It will be uh, in bookstores on March 10th. You can buy it today on Amazon, a pre-sale. <laughs> Um, so I'm spending a lot of time doing that. And I've also started another company. It's called brain trust. And it is, um, if probably a lot of your audience members are members of EO or (laughs) WPO, the women's president's organization. And I think EO and WPO both were pivotal to helping me become a better leader. Hmm. Um, but there are 12 million women business owners in the U S that don't qualify or EO or WPO because they don't have enough revenue. Mm. So you have to be at a million dollars in revenue to join those organizations. So I started Brain Trust for those 12 million women to help them get to a million dollars. So and what do you uh, guys do uh, to, to do that? Good question. It's a peer to peer membership, just like EO and WPO, oh, okay. where a group of seven women in a vault get together once a month to uh, present their business challenges and have uh, from experience sharing to learn how to overcome some of their business hurdles. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with both of those initiatives. So the book is called Lunch with Lucy. Yes. Naming, named after your, your tradition in your own company. Um, it comes out in March, but people can pre-order it now if they, if they want and brain trust. Now, if there's, um, Anybody who wants to reach out to you directly, is there, I mean, are you on Twitter? Do you like LinkedIn? Is there a way to sort of, if someone wanted to reach out and say hi, social, you know, on social, what, what the best way? LinkedIn's a great way. Sherry Stewart Deutschman. Sherry Stewart Deutschman. And we will put that in the show notes as well. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing this story. It's an amazing journey and uh, so glad you shared it with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.